0: My name is Pat Matthews, and I use the ideas from what to say when you talk to yourself to really help me become a better person and a better leader. I used the book and the ideas from the book to inspire employees inside of my company who in turn took the book and the principles from the book to inspire people they hire. You're listening to Action Path, hosted by Steve Cunningham. So, who are you and what do you do? So, my name is Pat Matthews. I am an entrepreneur turned investor. Most recently, I've started a venture capital firm called Active Capital, and I am the CEO and founder of that.
1: Awesome. So, we're, we're going to be talking about, you've got a fascinating journey from working in a company, entrepreneur, working at a bigger company, leaving that and where you are today. And I'm excited to be talking about the book, What to Say When You Talk to Yourself by Shad Holstein. Did I get that right? Helmstein. I Helmstein. Believe. Okay. So um, we're going to get to all that, but I want to start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in the Northern Virginia area,
0: right outside of Washington, D.C., in a small town called Springfield. And what did you do uh, as a child? You played sports. So as a kid, I became financially independent really, really early. So I ended up working a lot of side jobs. So my first job ever was mowing lawns. I parlayed that into mowing lawns and delivering newspapers. Then I worked at the local dry cleaners and the local grocery store. And so I sort of did a lot of jobs like that. I I also played football and basketball. And so I was a pretty active kid.
1: This is the first time I've ever heard anybody say I became financially independent when I was a, a kid. So like you were actually financially independent as a kid? I was
0: mostly financially independent. I I would say I was the at at probably 10 years old, I was the level of financially independent in the sense that I never wanted to ask my parents for money.
1: I feel like that's a whole other podcast we should probably have you on for. Uh, That's a fascinating story. Did you ever create a franchise of lawnmowers where you go around and collect the money and that kind of thing?
0: You know, I didn't. I, I, when, when I was younger, I was not that strategic. I was much more hardworking than I, than I was a a thinker, if you will. And so, you know, very early on, I just developed a very strong work ethic and over time I learned to, you know, work smart and hard, Uh, but that didn't come until, you know, college and, and maybe even after
1: so that was your, your first job. Take us into your going into university and what did you study? What did you want to be when you grew up? So
0: I was a bit aimless, you know, again, I was a hardworking
1: person, but
0: I did not have a lot of life plans at the time. In fact, before I went to college. So when I was in high school, I, I was, I was actually not a great student, even though I worked, you know, I worked hard outside of school. I was an average student, I would say, uh, and and I really never even thought about college. Nobody in my family ever went to college. College was not a you know dinner table subject or anything like that. Uh, it was really one of my good friends, who's still one of my best friends today, who encouraged me at one point in time to you should just apply for you know these five schools. He said, "I'm going to apply to these and a few others," and he sort of made the remark, "I think you could get into these, you know, potentially," and so I did. And I applied to a few schools and luckily I got into Virginia Tech, which I really look at as my first and maybe biggest break in life. I got to Virginia Tech a, a couple of years before the university really started to grow and, and get on the pace that it's on today. In fact, I, I like to say because it's true that that if I would have gotten there a couple of years later I wouldn't have gotten in because uh, somebody named Michael Vick, who was probably the best college football player of all time, came, came to Virginia Tech 2 years after I did and and from that day forward the the university just skyrocketed and and continues to grow today. So for me that was a big break. Immediately when I when I got to school, I met good friends that again are still good friends today and and some of those friends we ended up starting a business, which we can talk about in a little while, but I think you specifically asked me what, what did I study when I got to school? I was, again, I was very aimless still. I was very happy and proud to go to this big university in in Virginia, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I, I, I really was just a general studies major, whatever it's called. Um, you know, it's kind of a program where you, where you go to school and, and, you know, spend time taking a bunch of different classes while you figure out what you want to major in. Ultimately, I landed on a finance major and, and that's what I pursued from there.
1: And so when you finished up school, we're going to talk about your first job and where this book came in. Uh, What was your first job after school?
0: Well, first of all, I worked my way through school. So I had a lot of different jobs while I was going to school. And I took time off of school to go and, and work sort of quote-unquote real jobs, um, which is what ultimately shaped what my my future job after school ended up being. And so, you know, I worked a lot of side jobs, I did a lot of stuff while I was going to school, but then I also went to what's called the Virginia Tech Co-op Program, where I was able to take semesters and summers off of school to go work at like big established companies and and apply my you know, my area of study, which was great for me because I I, I realized going the big traditional company route was not for me. Um, Also, while I majored in finance, like the idea of being like a financial analyst or an accountant or something in, in that category of profession really was not super appealing to me. And so I kind of was able, as I went through school, I was able to rule out things that that I didn't want to do, which I actually am a huge believer that more and more kids today should do that, but most don't. Most just want to get through school as fast as they can, unfortunately. Hopefully that trend will reverse over time. But what ended up happening… Is as I started ruling some of these different professions out, me and some of my friends that I had met freshman year, we we were kind of on the side, always talking about starting a company together. And we didn't know what we wanted to do, but we were, while we were in school, this is when the dot com boom was happening, and so we kind of were all entrepreneurial, as it was, hardworking, entrepreneurial. They, you know, I was more on the, the sort of work ethic, hardworking, you know, business hustler side of things, whereas they were more on the computer science, computer engineering. You know, side of things. And and so we ended up dropping out of school actually and, and starting a dot-com.
1: Tell us a little bit about how you launched that company and what did you do? How did you get it off the ground?
0: Yeah. So we dropped out of school in 1999 to pursue our dot-com idea. And we actually got the business launched in March of 2000, which happened to be terrible timing if you were a dot-com because one month later, the NASDAQ crash and dot-com started systematically going out of business. And so for us, we had never raised a lot of capital. We didn't have a big cost structure. We were just young, you know, college-aged entrepreneurs trying to find our way. And so we were able, you know, while we watched the world around us collapse, we continued to iterate on our business and, and really con- continued to iterate and pivot until and, and we ultimately, a couple of years later, found something. But during those years, a couple of things happened. So, once we, first, we realized that our, our dot com idea was not going to live up to our hopes and dreams. And so we started to iterate on the business. Um, but me personally, I, I had to make ends meet and I, I had to work side jobs. And so I started getting into sales. And I worked, you know, for a while, I worked at Best Buy selling. For a while, I worked at Sears also selling. And then what happened is I, you know, typically I had to move to different cities to, to work some of these side jobs. So I had to move away from my startup for a while. And then ultimately what happened is, is we started to work on the version two of our business and I wanted to move back to, to Blacksburg, Virginia, where we were, where we were still incubating the second iteration of our business. And uh, I took an internship that summer and this, this was, so this was the summer of 2001 our business was in the doldrums. My, me and one of my partners each had nearing $100,000 in credit card debt each. And I just needed to do something at the time. I say to make ends meet, but really it was just to service my credit card debt and the, the interest on the debt. And so I had found an internship. In Virginia and what the internship was all about. Again, it was selling because I had now now started to get a bunch of excelling, selling experience under my belt, which ultimately proved extremely valuable later in life. And so the internship that I took on was selling books door to door in Southwest Virginia. And I had this amazing manager who ran this internship program. He was actually somebody who I'd always wanted to recruit for whatever successful business I would ultimately build. The guy was just... Unbelievably amazing, just one of those just naturally born salespeople that worked at it twenty four seven too, and um, you know this was by far the hardest, most gut wrenching job that I've ever had. You know, I don't I don't know if it matters if you're an introvert if you're an extrovert. When you were in the country, walking up to a stranger's door, getting ready to knock on it, it can be a very trying time. And for me, it was extremely nerve wracking. Every door, no door got easier. In fact, I went five doors or five days of knocking doors before I even sold my first book. And how this relates to the book that I told you about earlier, what to say when you talk to yourself. So they gave us a lot of training before they unleashed us into the wild, into the book field, as we called it. And my manager in particular, and probably a lot of these guys, were just big readers. I was never a big reader. I never read as a kid. I didn't read in, in very much in high school. I didn't read for fun, I should say. and Or I didn't read for self-improvement. I read because that was the job you had to do in school. And so this manager was really the first person to turn me on to reading for self-improvement. And one of the books that he gave me, and he sort of looked me in the eye and said, you're going to want to read this was this book called What to Say When You Talk to Yourself. And I I didn't really know what he meant, but I respected him. I admired him. And so I started reading the book. And it was good, but it it was really when I started reading the book and started knocking on doors at the same time that I realized how powerful of a book it was. And it really helped me get through that summer. And I'll tell you, like maybe 2% of the people that he recruited that actually started the job made it through the summer. So I was really proud of that. I was a terrible bookseller, but I made it. And that was a good little bridge for me. That, that was, that was, you know, that summer bridge helped me. I mean, number one, it helped me discover a ton about myself. I mean, it's very lonely out in the country knocking doors, I promise you. And, you know, so it I, there, there, there was a great summer of self-discovery. I learned, you know, a ton about myself. It was so difficult that everything else started to seem a little bit easier. And, uh, and after that summer, you know, I actually, my, my partner and I then took turns going back to school. We ultimately did get our degrees and it was right when, when, when we got our degrees that our, the third iteration of our business started to take off and the rest is history.
1: I have so many questions for you. What kind of books were you selling? That's a, that's a fascinating business model.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating set of books, especially if you know me really well too. So, um, Bibles were part of the repertoire as well as like children's encyclopedias all sort of, they all sort of had this like Christian religious sort of tone to them, but it was really that it was really sort of Bibles and children's books and encyclopedias and, and sort of that category.
1: And that's a fascinating backdrop to you're just coming out of the dot-com bust and you're now going door to door selling Christian books in the country. Lonely. Yes. Huge weight on your shoulders. Yep.
0: And a whole new set of objections from from people
1: as well, because the internet
0: was starting to make its way into people's houses and people had computers now and, you know, they were starting to search the internet and encyclopedias were going online. And so it was a... It was definitely a really interesting time. I mean, just think back to summer of 2001 and everything that was to come. I mean, the world changed just a couple of months later, you know, I mean, it was a very, very interesting time in my life. I mean, it was very interesting at the time. So it's not that I didn't realize it was interesting at the time, but, you know, even still to this day, reflecting back on, on just that period of time and that job in particular is just still a bit mind boggling.
1: Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, We're going to get into the ideas in the book in a a couple of minutes. I'd love to hear what were your first two iterations of your business before we get into the third?
0: Yeah, so the first iteration, so our dot-com, we had this idea that's still not been solved today. and, And I question whether it will ever be solved. But we were very social creatures in college, and we were always... Sort of searching for, you know, what are we going to do Friday night? What are we going to do Saturday night? What are we going to do Wednesday night? And, and it was, you know, and the internet was really starting to emerge. And so, you know, trends were, were you know, starting to, to emerge. And, and the idea, you, you know, you could go and you could search for a bunch of stuff. I mean, this was 99, 2000. Search was still really bad. Search in general was still really bad. Google was, if it was even a thing, nobody even knew about it. I mean, there were like 40 or 50 different search engines at the time and bill my my business partner he came up with this idea of creating a local event search engine so events of all kinds whether it's like arts and crafts happy hours you know theater wh- whatever you could imagine like we wanted to really figure out how to make the long tail of local events accessible and at your fingertips and so we did that by building really robust software i mean it was it was really one of the first user generated content platforms of its type in 99 and 2000. and so the idea was we would build this user generated content platform so that so that owners of and whoever was running these different events could easily post their events online and then we would aggregate them and make them searchable and we'd have marketing reps in every city that we go into and you know the idea of this business still is great to me. I mean when I go to a new city I want to figure out really quickly like what's going on and and really we wanted to solve like the the hyper local stuff. I mean you can figure out like if there's a baseball game or a perfect you know a Spurs game. I mean you can figure that kind of stuff out pretty easily, but it's still it's still really hard to figure out like what band is playing at Friday night at you know the local you know bar or club up the street. And so we were trying to solve that. And what we realized is that we were really good at building software, but we were really bad at aggregating the content. And so what we did then is we took a step back and we said, what if we turn this .com platform into a content management system and let's go sell it to people that have content and aggregate at least some of that event data. I mean, we did, that event data just it really didn't exist in sort of data format. But what we identified as a first target market was newspapers. Because, again, if you go back to 2000, you could still even argue today, newspapers were very, very behind when it came to the Internet age. They were also scared and paranoid and, you know, felt the Internet was going to eat their lunch, which it, you know, has in many ways. But... We felt that with our software and our technology platform, and if we could sell it as a content management software as a service to newspapers, we could help them stay relevant. And so we did that. So we went heads down and we rebuilt the platform so that we could sell it to businesses and newspapers. And so I would say we had a little bit of success. Newspapers started buying our software, but we had, there was a lot of challenges. I mean, number one, you know, they were, they were skeptical which led to long sales cycles. They didn't have big budgets. They also just didn't know what to do with the internet. And so we probably signed up 30 or 40 newspapers paying very little dollars per month. And it was kind of another, I don't know, 8 to 12 months before we realized that you know this also is not living up to our ambition and hopes and dreams, and this was you know summer of two thousand and one is when we started realizing this and and which is you know also why I had to do the internship. The business was not up and to the right like we wanted it to be and so what we then did was number one, we got a little lucky but but we we started to advertise a plethora of different services. So if you would have come to our website in 2001, you would have seen this content management system. And then we took some of the other features we had built for our .com and com We, we kind of made them accessible from our website. We marketed them is probably a better way to put it. And then what we did is because search, general search, started to emerge as such a big trend. We started marketing these different services. We started buying keywords. You know, before anybody was buying keywords, we were doing search engine optimization before anybody was doing search engine optimization. And really, I think you know what what you call it today is we were driving traffic to our site and seeing what kind of conversations we could stir up. And and what ended up happening is a large number of people and a growing number of people started asking us about one of the services we offered and we immediately spotted a trend and that that service was email hosting and and that actually goes all the way back to our .com days because basically what we wanted to do is create an end user service for people who want to find local events in their community but we also we kind of did the 1999-2000 play which was anybody that signs up for your service you give them a free email account. And so then when we ported all that over to a newspaper offer, part of our offer to newspapers was, look, we'll manage all of your content, we'll give you all the software to do all this stuff, and you can give give away free email accounts to people in your community. So, you know, you can get Pat at, you know, myexpressnews.com or, you know, myrevardreport.com or whatever it is. And that was very appealing to newspapers, but we listed that as a separate service on our website. And then in the background, what started happening, people were searching. That was one new trend that didn't exist, you know, two or three years prior. But another trend, too, is people wanted email on their mobile devices. Not on their iPhones, by the way, because iPhones didn't exist yet. They wanted them on their Palm Pilots and their Trios and their, you know, whatever other Blackberries. And these different mobile devices that came before, you know, the iPhone and the Android. And and so... We recognized that as a trend and we grabbed onto it and, and, you know, we refocused the business yet again, really for the the third time. And, uh, we set our sights on becoming the best email hosting provider for
1: businesses in the
0: world. And, and
1: we, we did it. Fast forwards today and you're, you've done some amazing things with that company and you went on to Rackspace and you're now doing, uh, the VC thing for the second time at a much bigger scale than the first. Yeah.
0: Time. So what, what really happened there is we, we grew the email business really, really fast. Um, we built all of our data center space inside of Rackspace space data centers. And so we ended up getting very close to them as a company and then in 2007 they decided that they wanted to get into our market and they also wanted to become just more of a software company in general and so in 2007 they acquired us and we all joined Rackspace for us it was a it was much more of joining a bigger cause than you know getting out if you will and so we all joined Rackspace I personally stayed there for 6 years and you know I I worked on a lot of things everything from software as a service to cloud computing to mergers and acquisitions and And, you know, I I played a big leadership role in the company during those years and and had a great time. I I think we did amazing things that I'm I'm really, really proud of. And when I left Rackspace, I started to angel invest. And basically what that means is I just took money that I had made from building and selling my company and being an executive at Rackspace. and, And I started investing back into small startups again. And I did that for a number of years. I learned a lot. I got more strategic when it came to, and more strategic and more thoughtful about about what I want to invest in and how I want to make investments and the types of founders and companies and et cetera, et cetera. And after all of those learnings, I, I started active capital
1: close to two years ago. We'll get back to what you're doing with active capital in a bit, but I want to rewind to this fascinating journey you were on. So... You're in you're in and out of school. Uh, you and all of your friends have tens of thousands of dollars in in credit card debt. Uh, you're doing this horrible job trying to make ends meet. You're on your third iteration of a company that ha- to that point hasn't worked. Let's get into that. I think that's a good jumping out point. Let's talk about the book and let's talk about how you use those ideas to get you through. And I'm, I'm sure that it must have been a something you applied over and over again through that period. So let's talk about the ideas uh, from the book. What was the main idea that you really latched on to? So
0: the main idea is that your mind believes what you tell it. And so the, the, the core thesis of the book is that if you program your mind with positive thoughts instead of negative thoughts, you're going to be a much happier person. And that happiness will transcend into whatever job you're doing or whatever path you're pursuing. And so how it played out for me in the book field was that it was just, it was a very nerve-wracking job. It was scary to go knock on every door. And there was a lot of potential for negative self-talk that, that you know, could make the job even harder. And so... And, you know, I, I, the book also just resonated with me. I mean, it sort of made me realize that I was a negative self-talker in a lot of ways. And and so I started applying a lot of what I was learning in the book and it really helped me. And, you know, I really think it's just a lesson in positive psychology and it, you know, so it helped me a ton in the book field. I I would argue it actually even helped me more later, and especially as I started helping other people learn the same types of principles. And and so, but I will always look back on this book as sort, of, it's sort of etched in my head as like the critical book and the critical theme and the critical, you know, aspect of positive psychology that helped me get through that summer and helped me get to the next door every time. And and then more importantly, as as our startup really did start to take off I mean it probably helped me a lot through through those times as well when we were failing and just everything was bad I was all of a sudden I was a, a broke in debt failed college dropout I mean it sounds real sexy to drop out of out of college but it's not that sexy when you're failing you know in, in addition to dropping out and so so I, I don't know but I, I, I think the the ideas that came from the book really helped me work through all of that. And then, as we started to to build a real business and and hire people and you know bring people in from but both people from in our circle as well as outside of our circle, I, I think what happened for me is that once I started adopting a lot of these positive psychology principles, I started noticing when other people were lacking them and so that's when I would start to you know buy the book for everybody. It almost became like not a joke but but sort of that, that book that Pat's going to make you read. And, and so, you know, everybody very early on read it. I, I don't, you know, we didn't quite scale it up to like everybody once we became a real company with dozens and dozens of employees. But, you know, some, some of our early people I, I did notice and, and I've still noticed today have used it as a tool and, and, you know, with some of the people that they hire and some of the teams that they're building. And so I definitely think the, the legacy of what we were doing back then lives on. And, uh, and, and really I just continue to apply it in everyday life.
1: What would be some examples of what was going through your head during those times? How how did, how did the book help you notice that I was going through your head and what would you put in your head instead? I just think that
0: the, the job that I had that summer was just a very easy one to quit. And I knew intellectually I didn't want to quit it, but emotionally I did. And so I really use the positive psychology to help get my emotions to where my intellect was. And so I would just, I would, I would say, I mean, I would actually say in the, in the book field, I, I would exercise an exaggerated version of it. There's nobody else out there. And so you can, you can say whatever you want out loud and no, there's nobody around to hear it. Okay. And, and so I did a lot of that. And then just by going through the exaggerated version of it, I think it helped
1: me adopt a more subtle version of it throughout the rest of my life. Do you have some like specific examples? What would you yell out in the book field to kind of psych yourself up?
0: I wouldn't really yell, but as I'm walking to a door, I would say, I'm looking forward to talking to these people. I'm looking forward to knocking on the door. I'm like, you know, it's things like that, as opposed to, oh God, another door I've got to knock on, you know. And I hope they don't answer. You know, it's I hope they do answer instead of I hope they don't answer. I mean, it's just a lot of little tweaks. And and what I what I think I learned the most. I mean, so th- those are examples, and uh, you could carry those examples on. I mean, there's dozens and probably hundreds of little examples like that. Like you know, there would be times where I would be so. Sort of in my head about going to the next door that I'd go to the gas station for lunch and not only would I go to the gas station for lunch, but like first I'd go in and get like a little can of ravioli. I'd go back to my car and eat it. Then I'd go get a water. I was stalling. And so, you know, I would just try to hype myself out of that. And it wasn't a bunch of yelling and screaming. It was just positive self-talk. And then I just think as I've gone through life, I've tried to figure out how to apply that. And I look, I slip back just like I'm sure everybody does. I'm not the most like cheery, happy-go-lucky, positive person that's smiling all the time. So m- most people know that about me. But I do sort of have this, this inner and sometimes outer, you know, self-talk mode. And more than anything, I just try to a- a- adopt the idea of positive psychology where I can. I'm also, you know, look, I'm somebody that is... I believe very much in a mix of positivity and pragmatism. Like, I don't just think you can be super positive all the time and expect to drive a bunch of results that way. And so, people that are super positive all the time, I actually end up challenging them to be a little bit more pragmatic too. And so, you know, really it's about finding the right balance on all of these things.
1: And so, kind of shifting gears to you're working with other people, you're managing them. You noticed yourself in the past going through this negative self talk and you reversed it. How did you, how did you, because you can't see people's self talk, but how did you, how do you notice times when people were clearly talking negative to themselves? Well,
0: you know, I I just think it starts by hearing them talk negative out loud in general to everybody else. And so I think that if, you know, I, I think that a lot of positive talk or negative talk goes way beyond talking to yourself. And so, I would like to get people to read the book to sort of buy into the idea that speaking more positively is just better than speaking negatively. Nobody likes to be around negative people. I mean, let's just face it. And, and so, it, look, people can be tough and they can be pragmatic and and it's not that you want you know, la-di-da positivity all the time, but I generally think most humans gravitate to people that are more positive than more negative. And so I would just try to coach around that.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. You mentioned that most people don't view you as a positive, go-lucky, happy kind of guy. Right. And so I think I think this is important because you've done some amazing things in business. People don't see you as that positive, go-lucky guy. Right. But this is an important thing, I think especially for entrepreneurs who are almost always going to struggle. Um, even the people who look... So successful from the outside, struggle mightily Absolutely. on the inside, and I don't think in entrepreneurship or it, maybe in life in general that we talk enough about it, especially in entrepreneurship, which is probably the hardest thing that uh, somebody could do as for a living.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially in these days where we live in the Instagram and Facebook age, where everybody's smiling and posting BS. I mean, it. You know, I look. I, I, I definitely think we live in an age where people are creating these sort of auras around them. A lot of times they're fake, though. And I don't know, everybody's going to have to deal with that in, in different ways. But I generally believe, I mean, going back to the book, that, I mean, again, I believe in a mix of positivity, pragmatism, realism.
1: Did you ever find yourself going too far on positivity? and you had to reel yourself back in to be more pragmatic? Or are you just wired to be slightly on the negative side so that wasn't a problem Yeah, for
0: I think I'm wired to be more pragmatic. I, I, I'm sure I can be negative at times as well. And so I don't know that I'm somebody that has like the danger of just being too positive all the time because I'm very much rooted in pragmatism, I think. And so I don't know that I've ever gone too far. I, I do think that entrepreneurs in general though, I would say one of the great characteristics of most entrepreneurs is their optimism. And I think that that optimism that you, that we all have to portray to the world is is great. And it it you know many times it will lead to amazing outcomes, but I think without pragmatism it it is just, you know, positivity without results. I think with the book though, and and the theme that I'm really talking about is just staying positive. You can be positive while being pra- pragmatic and you can be positive and you can stay sane while going through hard trying times. I mean, I look, I think people have to deal with their problems. I think people have to deal with the facts. I think people have to deal with their hardships. You know, I mean, just, just, but, but I think you can stay, You can. I, I think you have to work to stay positive and to stay healthy while you go through all that.
1: It almost seems to me like that is something that would help you not quit. And so your story is hardship, hardship, hardship. I'm gonna stay positive through this. I'm gonna deal with the facts that I've got all this stuff to deal with and that I'm running door to door selling books. Um, yes,
0: but let me give you a very important nuance and all that. When I look back at our story, it wasn't that we never quit. It was that we always changed. So I actually believe that one of the reasons why so many entrepreneurs fail is they can never come to grips with they have the wrong idea or the wrong, it's the wrong timing or it's the wrong business model or whatever it is. And, and so if you look back on our story, we would go hardcore on whatever idea or mission or vision that we had at the time. But we would be pragmatic enough to realize, guys, this is not working, so let's change it. So, yes, we didn't quit, but we definitely quit ideas, and we moved on from them, and we got to the next path. And by the way, that was still hard. I mean, we could have quit altogether and gone and gotten, you know, quote unquote, real jobs or what have you. But, you know, I do actually get a little bit nervous when, when I, when I tell our story and and the theme of it that people take away is that you never quit. I actually think there is time to quit. I think there's time for a lot of entrepreneurs to go get real jobs and do what they have to do to support their themselves and their families. And, and it's tough for me actually to watch entrepreneurs sort of Linger for, for too long because most of them are very talented people and th- those talents can be put to work in in very valuable places and so to me the theme is not to never quit it, it it's to actually iterate and be honest with yourself being honest with yourself if you're failing is not that's not being negative it, you know. It, I, I think you want to stay positive throughout it all, and, but you also want to stay clear thinking and you want to recognize when something's not working. And maybe you give it, you know, the, the final old college try or whatever, whatever you want to call it, but ultimately you got to move on. And whether that's to a new business idea as an entrepreneur or, you know, a better job that's going to, you know, pay you what you need to be paid, whatever it is, I don't know. It's different for everybody. But I, I think the idea of refusing to quit at some point, that's just stubbornness.
1: And how do you tell the difference? That's a, I think that's a really important corollary idea to what you're talking about. And you obviously found success. Um, there may be an alternate universe where you didn't find that success. Did you ever think about if this one doesn't work, I'm going to go get a job? Or how did you yeah, process Yeah, I, I think
0: that was always our, our downfall mentality was that we're all – relatively smart, hardworking, normal people that can go get real jobs and apply our work ethic in, in different ways. And and maybe it's not going to have the same outcome that, you know, starting a big, exciting company does. But I don't think like the idea of all out failure, I just think was not like a huge worry. Now we also didn't raise like tens of millions of dollars from other people. And, you know, I mean, we raised a little bit, we raised $500,000, a total of $500,000. And, but by the time we raised any money, any real money, you know, we, we had a business and real revenue and growth. So it was pretty de-risked when, when we actually did raise capital, but that's a side note. Um, I just think we saw failure as just back to real life and maybe go regroup and work a job for a few years and, and maybe, who knows, maybe we would find success on that path or we would be back with a new idea. I just think getting stuck is something that you want to try to avoid. And so your original question was, how do you know when you're stuck? First of all, I think people know. I think it's, I think it is difficult to do something about it. I think it's difficult to say it out loud. You know, maybe back to the the theme of the book, like being able to say things out loud sometimes is, you know, difficult. Um, you know, for us, I mean, I'm, I'm really thankful that there were three of us when we hit those really tough times. And, you know, we tended to all have different viewpoints at different times, which sort of, you know, kept us going. Um, but I don't know, you know, the, the writing a lot of time is, is on the wall. Like, you know, are you growing? You know, are you generating profits if you're building that kind of business? Are you, you know, I mean, when I say that kind of business, I mean, there's some tech companies where I, I think like if you're growing and you're working your way towards relevance in the world, you know, it, it's okay to lose money for, for a little while, but, but you have to figure out what the, what are the metrics you're What are the success metrics that you're really measuring and and looking at And, and, you know, if you're a sole entrepreneur, like I'm much more of a sole entrepreneur today, although I, you know, I'm building a team around me and, and I want that team to give me feedback. Like I also, I, have got advisors, you know, I would, I would encourage, you know, solo entrepreneurs to get advisors that can help them. I mean, you know, one of my good friends always had the saying that I can see everything but itself, which is oftentimes true. And so if you can't see it and your partners can't see it and your advisors can't see it then I don't know but but I but I just I generally believe that as long as you're you're measuring your progress in some way shape or form then you you can get to the conclusion. Then to me the the real question is like how do you do something about it? And you know that's maybe for another day.
1: <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about results and I think this one might be a little hard to get to. In a, in a concrete way, but we're gonna try anyways. Um, what kind of results can you point to to say, I apply these ideas, here are the results that I found because of this specific idea. And so is this related to the book? Are we gonna stick with, yeah, we can do that. Right. Yeah, and yeah. it doesn't have to be in, the, in that time period. It could be in other businesses that you've worked on or you've invested in.
0: Well, I, I would say concrete results to me as they relate to the the theme and the learnings from, from the book that we talked about. I would say the most concrete results that I have seen... I mean, so, first of all, personally, I have grown tremendously. Not all as a result of the book, but it certainly has its place on my bookshelf of important learning lessons. Um, I've grown tremendously as a person, as a, as, a, as a leader, you know, I think, in and in, in my personal life, too. Um, but more importantly, I have seen dozens of people that I have helped coach and train and mentor over the years grow even very specifically as a result of this book and, and as a result of, of really injecting the idea of positive psychology into them. And I mean, some of them have, you know, gone from really struggling In the business world, or they're, you know, or struggling with their career or struggling with their personal life to growing into super successful people. And that is something I'm really proud of.
1: You have a specific example of one of those we could quickly talk through?
0: We could talk about my brother. Yeah,
1: let's do it. You know, my brother was
0: uh, one of the first employees in my company. Um, You know, he would probably laugh when he hears this podcast, but. You know, when he joined our company, he was what I would call a chronic negative self talker. And, you know, we invested in him. And one of the first things that I had him do was read this book. I think, I think he had to do a book report out of it, in fact. This was a long time ago. And, you know, I, I watched him grow. He really grew as a person, um, he grew as an employee. But I would even say again, he grew as a leader and I watched him go from somebody who was struggling in his career to being really successful in his career to then becoming a really awesome leader who then started instilling these types of positive psychology attributes into his people. And that made a huge difference for him at Webmail, which was our startup. It made an even bigger difference at Rackspace for him and all of the dozens and I don't know, maybe even hundreds of people that he hired over the years. And today, it's making a really big difference at WP Engine, where, where
1: he's uh, where he's a pretty big time leader there. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. This seems like one of those ideas that has a huge ripple effect, where once you see it in yourself and it's worked for you, you're going to want to give that gift to other people as well. That's right. So let's let's shift gears to today. And you've, you've raised a, a venture fund and you're investing in companies. One of the things I've noticed through my previous interactions with you is that you're very much focused on the pragmatism piece. We're building real businesses here and we're gonna be very pragmatic about how we build them. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how do you inject pragmatism into entrepreneurs when they're all they're reading is people raising hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, and they want to take this moonshot. When of course there's only going to be a few of those in the course of history. So how do you so? How do you inject this? And I wrote this down: positivity plus pragmatism into the entrepreneurs you work with.
0: So the first thing that I do is look for founders that have those characteristics or at least a shadow of those characteristics to begin with. I, I don't want to make myself believe that I can, you know, teach dozens and dozens of founders how to be, you know, positive and pragmatic. So I, I look for them. And that that's a great, you know, vantage point that I have today is that I get to look at a lot of companies and spend time with a lot of founders and, and I and I look for founders with certain qualities and, and characteristics. And, and you know, specifically, I, I love founders that can make a lot of business progress without raising a lot of capital. And there, there are a lot of those out there. You know, one of the beauties about the business climate that we live in today, especially in tech and especially where I invest, which is in the, the, the business software market, like I like to call it B2B SaaS. I hate acronyms, but I, inside of my market, that's a pretty relevant one. Those are essentially people that are building software that they sell to businesses. It's really that simple. And in today's business climate for that kind of company, it's actually very cheap to get a company like that going. So some founders decide right out of the gate, I'm going to raise two, three, four, five million dollars and then go build the company. And I'm just a little bit less attracted or maybe a lot less attracted to, to that approach. Nothing against, nothing personal against the founder. I just don't believe that you need all of that kind of money to get going. And I think money comes with downsides. I think it can create distractions. You will. I think uh, most founders that raise too much money too early, they end up building up a cost structure and building up a team that they don't need yet. And it it, all of a sudden you have management headaches, and you haven't even launched a product yet. And so I just I don't believe in that way of building a business. And, And so I I love founders who can bootstrap their way to a product and to customers and to to you know real growth and traction, and then they look to raise capital to help accelerate growth from there. And so I look for those pragmatic attributes.
1: Yeah, I think you're saying you know. It's your experience in knowing what that looks like yeah. from yourself and from others. Well,
0: so, yeah. So I, I, at least I think I know what it looks like. Um, I oftentimes get it wrong, but I think I know what it looks like. And then from there, I like to have conversations with founders about what is right for their business. So you mentioned how they're reading, you know, TechCrunch and all the tech news and Twitter about every company that raises gazillions of dollars. They're, those headlines are there every day. And that might be the path for some of them. But what I really try to do is work with each company on an individualized basis to help them create a path that is right for them and for their business. Some companies have the opportunity to raise a lot of money for the right reasons because they can build something really, really valuable. But the problem is, most companies don't have the opportunity to build something valuable and still raise the money anyways. And that ends up putting them in a really tough spot. And so I try to coach them to create what I call optionality. And really all that means is that, you know, maybe you raise a little bit of money to to get your business going. Maybe you raise a little bit more to help accelerate its growth. Um, but from there, I think you really should manage your burn, keep your costs low, and get to the point where you have real product market fit. You're growing fast. You can either get the business to profitability or have a line of sight to profitability. And then, if you find the right investor with the right terms, and you know you really want to go for it, raise the money um, and do it on your terms at that time because you've got options. You're you're not you're not beholden to the next round of financing. And so, I don't know. I, like, I don't have a magic answer other than I work with each company individually to figure out what the best path is for their individual business at that specific time.
1: And I, I know through the conversations we've had before that you're, that's like a, a breath of fresh air in a world where everybody seems to want to swing for the fences. You can build a great business. It doesn't have to be billion a billion-dollar-a-year revenue business. Um, and that's, you know... Just a, a side comment that you know we've done this season with San Antonio entrepreneurs, kind of the well, the best of San Antonio. Um, and what I've noticed, um, what I've learned from the people we've had on the podcast is a very pragmatic bunch of people. And to your point, they're positive people, but they're also very pragmatic and really focused on helping people build real businesses. And so I hope anybody who's listening to this and has listened to the previous episodes gets that, that you can build a real business and you should be proud of building a real business. And I think I've seen you tweet about that uh, a few times. I'm sure I have.
0: You know, one of the things you asked me about earlier is when, when do you know when you're stuck or when is it time to quit or when is it time to pivot? I also think you have to be really honest with yourself about what the true opportunity ahead is for your successful business too, because this is where entrepreneurs can end up in really bad spots, even though they're building something great is, you know, maybe you have a $20 million opportunity, but then you go raise $20 million to pursue it. Well, the math doesn't work. And and so I just think that more, I just continuously encourage entrepreneurs to be very thoughtful about what the opportunity is in front of them. And look, if they want to pursue the billion dollar business, it's not bad. They just have to figure out, do they have it on their hands now? If not, maybe they need to get out of that business. Maybe they need to sell it. Maybe they need to wind it down. Maybe they need to do something else with it and then go search for what the billion dollar idea is. Like I'm also not of this vein that you know, trying to find the billion dollar business is a bad thing. I just think you have to be very honest about what the opportunity is that you have in your hands. And then what are you going to do about it? Like, are you going to go for it the right way? Are you, you know, are you going to raise too much capital and put yourself in a bad position? Are you going to hand the business to somebody else so that you can move on and go do something else? See, for us, we knew A, we had a failure first. So we moved on from that. B, then we knew we had something, that was okay but it wasn't growing really fast and it was kind of boring and and you know it just it didn't it didn't meet our ambition so we helped all of those customers find new homes and we went on to our third business and even that one was not a billion dollar business i mean it was a it was a really good business and it was growing really fast and we ultimately got it to 10 million in revenue And we sold it for a hundred times capital in the business. A lot of things I'm proud of, but you add all that up, it's a $50 million sale, not a $5 billion sale, but that was right for us. That was, and that's actually one of the metrics I love to look at is like capital in versus exit out. You know, that, that's a metric that a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs forget. You know, you raise 20 million bucks, you want to sell it for a hundred times that, I mean, that's a lot of money, you know, but if you raise 20 million bucks, you sell it for 30, it's not a very great, it's not a very good outcome. And so I just think you have to be very thoughtful about all of those different variables.
1: Well, I, I think we could talk about this for hours, but uh, we'll we'll wrap it up there. And uh, in the future, we'll, we'd love to have you back. Um, if people want to find out more about who you are and what you do, where should they go? Uh, you can look at our website,
0: activecapital.com. I'm at Pat Matthews on Twitter, or you can always email me. Our, our, all of our email addresses are right off our homepage on activecapital.com.
1: Pat, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me.
0: Action Path is a production of Geekdom Media in association with Gameday Media Enterprises. Executive producers are Lorenzo Gomez III, John Garcia, Jason Barrera, and Michael Largent. If you want access to summaries and takeaways from hundreds of business books, check out Steve's company, Read It For Me, at readitfor.me.
1: That's readitfor.me.